0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello, everyone.
1: And uh, today's another episode of the 3D Pod, and today it's just me and Maxwell Vogue. Hey, everyone. And uh, yeah, Max and I are going to talk today about distributed manufacturing. So, there's been a lot of attention lately in the news about distributed manufacturing. It was kind of this utopian dream uh, in the beginning years or 10 years ago about 3D printing. It was everybody was talking about it this idea of, uh, of, of, of manufacturing returning to the United States of America or manufacturing happening locally everywhere around the world and, and happening very differently from. You know the the system, the prevailing system of the world of this mass manufacturing of this uh, these these long supply chains that stretch around the world, and we're all focused on making a million things, and we were all going to then transition to a new world where uh, you know everything was going to be mo- manufactured in your local city or maybe even your local neighborhood, and people saw that as a panacea, and now. Interest is is uh, is, is being you know, kind of reborn in this area, and people are really looking hard at the, this kind of development. What do you, what do you think about this, Max?
0: I mean, I think that uh, <laughs> under these new new world circumstances, it's uh, all of a yeah. sudden making a lot more sense than it had before, and that's what I think is mm-hmm. prompting it. You know, it's funny because if you go far enough back in time, um, in like you know early in the early days of manufacturing, this is how it was done, right? Like lace was made in, a, in someone's home and then it was all gathered up at the factory itself and then shipped out to wherever it needed to go. It's, this is, you know, 1600s, but, um, or paper, things of that nature. So it's kind of like going back to the old school, but at the same time, um, modern vision of it. So with 3D printing, it really allows a different way of allowing this to happen. And I think it's, it's it can do quite a lot especially for uh, low unit production. So if you're just mm-hmm. making 500 of something, I think decentralizing is a great way of doing it.
1: And do you think, but do you think this is going to be a niche thing? I mean, is this, is this going to be for certain things, like uh, supply chain assurance things, or high-end things, or low volume? Or is this going to be something that, that for a lot of items we're going to see?
0: I think for low volume and for supply chain kind of related stuff, Uh, Yeah, I don't think high volume kind of scenarios necessarily make sense on that level, unless there's a reason that you're doing it decentralized where you're you're producing a lot of them um, and for the local area. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that that's how I would envision a higher volume system working, almost like, you know, you have a print shop in your area and and if you want to, you could do a distributed magazine, so to speak. Uh, where you're sending it out to each regional print shop to print it out rather than having one big print and then shipping it to each individual customer uh, so if there's a way to save money people always will gravitate towards it right
1: Well I mean I'm going to play a little bit of the devil's advocate I totally yeah. agree but, but what if like you know now you have a kind of fashion risk you have this risk like you know this when you're making your three doodler and stuff you have to get the molds you're kind of locked into making like one or two model revisions per year because of Mold and tool making, and that whole process. You know, on the one hand, you can have less fashion risk because you don't have to make a million of like a kid model that maybe won't sell or whatever. All right, there's less upfront costs, and you can be more flexible down the road. You can make a version for left-handed people really quickly, or a version for you know, uh, particular regions or whatever. Right. You don't think that'll pay for itself, kind of, and in, in being more flexible or adding more flexibility to, to, to your
0: uh, product offering? I mean, that comes with. Downsides as well, right? Because more product offerings, more SKUs is more complexity in your system, more Mm -hmm. inventory to keep track of, more, more, more. So it sounds great, but at the same time, the logistics side of it makes would make me the someone who has to deal with this go like, Uh, (laughs) meh. (laughs)
1: and it compounds the problems are compounded right because customer service is more complicated because you have the xyz model and and, Uh, uh,
0: how do i know which version you have no no this is what it said on the website yeah but your serial number says this you know so there's uh, yeah for every advantage i can think of disadvantages too but um you know like right now i have people that are are doing stuff in their homes for for our company um to keep things like moving effectively um And I have suppliers that said to us that they have people who are like packing packs of plastic in their house. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, So on some level, I can see that. But it's also still all going to some centralized distribution hub to be shipped out. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where I think truly decentralized manufacturing and real decentralized manufacturing could, could have a big advantage is that you could do these mini setups in different locations to service the needs in that particular location. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think it's interesting I mean, to me I mean on the one hand I think like a million if you need to make a million copies of everything in order for it to make economic sense you're definitely going to be you're always going to be making like you're going to have a million unhappy customers and the way to make these people unhappy is to convince them that that one thing with a million copies is just something they want so you market yourself out of the problem rather than making a better product for them so to me in an ideal world, I would like to see more SKU, more, more different versions, more <laughs> less tended versions for fine uh, yeah. So even though I understand that from a supply chain perspective, also just like capital-wise, it's it's gonna be really annoying. And also just like the complexity in your organization is gonna is gonna increase because of this as well. So I understand the downsides of it, but I but I like the idea of being the what you also alluded to this local versions. Mm-hmm. Kind of this top spin or this kind of localization that you can do that would be really interesting. Uh, I could also understand there's a lot of risks there. You end up with 100 versions of a product.
0: Um, what do you uh, do with a. Yeah, that someone doesn't want for yeah. some reason. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I could think of the. the, the they have the. There's this kimchi solid storage things for, for the Korean market, which they have in fridges which kimchi is, like, a big thing. It's a yeah. cabbage, a it's fermented kimchi. cabbage, and it's super smelly. And, and okay, I understand that there's also, like, kim. there's also, like, free, uh, freezers and stuff with integrated kimchi storage, okay, and then integrated yeah. kimchi washing things. Mm. And then, you know, I can understand that, that certain things are good, but it's also, like, I think it's a path to, like, really inefficient use of your capital and you know you could I like mean, really hyper localization
0: right could have yeah. a, a negative effect as well no i mean it's yeah. with any business it's a balancing act obviously but um I, yeah. I i do see some of the advantages though and i do think that um especially for startup decentralized manufacturing is interesting but when it gets to like larger numbers all of a sudden are you how are you doing that i guess is the thing and on some level aren't we already doing that if you know like I get screws from a screw factory and then I give those to another factory who then uses those screws in a product that like you're making and uh, electronics are coming from an electronics facility and tooling or injection molded parts are coming from another facility and then they all get assembled in one location so I think on some level we don't realize how much we're, we already do do decentralized manufacturing. It's just that it all happens in like a factory area like, you know, cars are made up of tons of subcomponents, and they're all manufactured at different locations. Um, is that decentralized? I guess the question is, how do we define it? Because you could you could make that argument on some level.
1: It's, a, it's, a, it's an important point you're making here, because I think one of the interesting things is, of course, you know, the reason we're talking about this is the whole COVID thing. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is this, uh, if we look at the ventilator problems, like a lot of the reasons why some of these companies aren't scaling up is a particular sensor. Like, for example, one company is not able to make more of these things at this moment because their factory in Vietnam is shut, right? Right. Uh, so literally, and that's one sensor. That's a really specialist sensor. And because it's a medical device, they can't just redesign their way around it, right? And even if they would, that would, that would you know, take too much time. We don't have that now. So it, I think this is a really fantastic example of, on the one hand, this is causing people to talk about a decentralized, more resilient supply chain, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, are we really going to have a fab, or you know, in the Netherlands? Right. right. Well, and that was kind of funny because <laughs> we make them here. But but uh, but that that's one thing. Like the whole fab thing, right? The big fabs that make billions of chips and stuff. It doesn't, you know, they're just too expensive, and there's no way to do this. There's no there's no mini fab kind of like, right. you know, um, or an SMT machine. So, so like, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: it's a you, big chemical
1: so, <laughs> so then even if we would be able to 3D print the entire ventilator in a, in a, a clean room type environment, and all the parts we served, we'd, we'd, we'd solve all the problems, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And still we'd have the problem with the sensor unless we could 3D print electronics and then we can do a custom print of electronics and also happen to have been able to 3D print this one particular sensor. And so in that sense, I'm thinking like, is it really going to solve the problem? You know, unless we really got a full 3D printing, like it'd be cool. And we've talked about this before. Like, let's print all the electronics. Of course, it's a nice idea. But uh, I mean, I think, you know, being doing the rest of the ventilator is is, is, is relatively doable if we had investment and, and we targeted that kind of thing as a target. But to do the sensor package, you know, that would be. That's yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you see. So, like, uh, in Boston, actually, right now, there's something called the Artisan's Asylum, and they've converted. Um, some of their uh, facility it's originally was a hacker space and now they're making ppe and they're making face shields and they're making um all sorts of other stuff and they're using their printers and they're using that because there's no electronics so they're able to use uh 3d printing technology and manpower so to speak uh person power in order to produce that stuff to supply the local uh market i.e the the hospitals here in boston uh, which is where I think right now we can do it. That's what 3D printers can do, like right now, or the valve example, and from from Italy uh, that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Um, those are those situations that make sense. But you're right until until electronics can be printed. Like you're still got to get those from somewhere, um, and those still have to be produced at a facility that has that capability.
1: Uh, so. And these, like especially these lithographic processes, these processes where it is scale is the only you know, is the only option really to make like you know anything like television, LED screens, chips, uh, all these kind of like things. They're always going to be, or at least, you know, I know there's people making and working on nanotech type of stuff that could potentially replace it. But that seems to me to be very, very far away. And otherwise, I'm always it's always going to be a billion dollar machine that's like uh, the size of a couple of basketball courts. That there, there's like going to be a bunch of those in several really countries that consider this to be strategic for them, and and uh, it doesn't really make sense to make them anywhere else. You know. But but okay, so if we do if we do, and the thing I mean, we don't we don't we both don't really believe in the electronics thing for now, and you you said okay, so we can do kind of the the non-interesting parts. Is there then a value in this 3D printed uh, distributed manufacturing model?
0: Is there, I think a, I is, think there is because if you're still if you're saying that the the hardest thing to do is the electronics, they also happen to be one of the easiest things to ship. Yeah. So <laughs> space-wise, like you know, a, yeah. a, a PCB takes up next to no space and then if we're talking about a physical product that's being made um and the the 3d printer is making the shell and or let's say it's a robot for a second you know um you can ship all the components the motor and the whatnot and then have someone assemble it because assembly is still a thing that's needed um for most products for physical products and so that's why i think you could do that like and still make it work you can make it work a lot, especially if, uh, if we're looking at a, an economy in the United States like that we're looking at right now. Um, it might mm-hmm. be a way of doing manufacturing without having to invest in the larger systems needed to do manufacturing. Like you don't need a factory set up and you don't need all this other stuff. Although I don't know how OSHA regulations are going to play into effect when you're, uh, you're manufacturing at home.
1: Yeah, well, that's the problem. If we're really talking about like doing it at home, at home. And I, I mean, the funny thing is, when I was talking about this, thinking about this stuff years ago, I, I thought of this culminatory manufacturing idea. So I thought, I always thought that the chips would come shipped, like you're saying, as mm-hmm. well, or with some kind of Arduino, super powered Arduino that you could reprogram to do most things, right? Uh, some kind of Mega Arduino, non Arduino Mega, you know, but <laughs> you know what I
0: mean? an FPA. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and then and th- that kind of idea but I always imagined that these just still would be produced centralized and I imagine that the customization you know it's just 10 years ago or something like that, or longer and then and then I always imagine everyone would want to mass customize all their own designs and make give their own little flavor to it and make their own like you know phone cases and and and, and everything you know yeah and I always kind of I kind of always thought it would be that but I always also imagine that like in a city or a neighborhood of like Two hundred thousand people, or something, uh, that would be like one centralized kind of fab lab, or maybe a supercharged fab lab thing. I wouldn't. I did. I didn't really think that we were actually going to be like
0: making it home. You no, know, I thought the
1: factory in your housing was like a metaphor, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 you
0: know,
1: I thought. I, I thought about this. I mean, but then, but then, the machine would have to do a lot more than it does today. You know, right. The, the whole idea of people, you know, putting you know, PPE in a box and then giving it to the hospital just like, is just terrifies me, you know? And that's the same, I think with a lot of other stuff. Oh, you oh yeah.
0: Yeah. And box. I mean, the example I gave, they, the artisans asylum had to set up a clean system, uh, and have all of their employees like wearing masks and gloves and the whole thing as they're assembling and making the equipment, um, and the gowns. So yeah, no, it's, that's fair. You still have to have like a facility on some level. to a go-to, Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I just think it'd be like there's stuff like pets or something. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it just ran in to your ice cream factory machine uh, production line, you know, and, and coughed on everything. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't know. I just, I just see issues with that. But I think, I think people are ready to be more resilient and more, you know, involved in manufacturing and want to take control and want to kind of like. So I can imagine there's a lot of people that want to explore this, and and would want to do it. I think also as a startup business, I think, I mean, was it difficult for you guys to get the first uh, three doodler made, for example? Was that like, a, did that, how long did that take, the whole process?
0: Um, I mean, the the concern before we did the startup was, are we going to have enough units to justify going to a factory?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: yeah. And, and, you know, you need at least a thousand, if not more, to go to a factory and say, hey, I want to make this. Um, And so we were fortunate enough that we had around 20,000 pre-orders so we could go to a factory. But even when you go to a factory, like from finishing, you know, we had a prototype ready to go, so to speak. And it's still six to eight months to go from like a concept or prototype to an actual manufacturable device Uh, Mm because, you know, 45 days or 22 days to 45 days for tooling. But you have to design everything beforehand. You have to make it manufacturable. It means it has to be an assembly line design, meaning that it has to be simple for people to put it together on an assembly line type of environment. So, you you know, there's all sorts of different um, theories on manufacturing, but what could be done on the distributed model is something called cell manufacturing, where you have like six or seven employees uh, working in kind of a shared cubicle space. And they they all do multiple jobs as if they were an assembly line uh, to help break up the monotony of not just doing the same task repeatedly. Uh, and they work on finishing and completing an entire product amongst a smaller group. And there's some uh, models out there of this where it can it can be more efficient than the traditional assembly line style manufacturing um but it's still it's you know it's still done in a factory environment you still have access to all the stuff that you need um and the setup but i think yeah (laughs) i answered multiple questions there but
1: no uh, but uh, that's a good point i mean but did you do you think that would deter that kind of risk and that complexity i think a lot of like i mean we know from kickstarter stuff that a lot of companies fail this whole uh, this path from prototype to manufacturing yeah um and cause, also because they don't know, right? Because they just think, oh, I'm a visionary entrepreneur, so I'll, I'll just go and know, some do, of the do the copy. vision.
0: <laughs> right, I just do the... I just, These man, things will make themselves. Exactly, right? these things make themselves. But manufacturing is uh, very difficult. And setting uh, it up, to uh, do a decentralized system, you have to rethink how the product is made, and therefore you have to rethink the product itself um, to make it as simple as possible to manufacture in whatever, you know... If it's a, a warehouse or whatever, how you're defining decentralized, um, it has to be designed around that supply system, that supply chain, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So I think doing that, though, is that's its own vision. <laughs> so that's its own. Oh, yeah, exactly. uh, but do
1: we think that in a, a distributed world would be really good? Because then you get more startups, you'll get more entrepreneurship. Yeah.
0: if If, if you make the barrier for manufacturing, Lower, then you will have more interesting products happen as a result. Because right now it's so high, and the amount of money needed to get it going is such that it's it is definitely a barrier uh, for entrepreneurs to to get into making something physical. You know, software is an example because you need all you yeah. need is a computer for most software.
1: I think it's interesting because it's like it's, it like kind of opens the door to kind of like a casual manufacturing kind of thing. Right, where the next big I don't know fork or knife company or you know whatever uh, company could become somebody's hobby. And before this is already kind of already you know this has been the case for some people already. But now you're kind of in you know you're engendering that because other everybody's interested in making stuff. And if the barriers entry are low, then somebody who is casual could actually you know do this as a side gig or do this as like you know you make sunglasses as a side gig. You can do that now right yeah, uh, you could make uh, hearing aids as a side gig as well and and and, and headphones, you know There's yeah, a I lot know. of stuff that like, even like a couple of years ago would not have been accessible for like you know and literally like maybe it would take you like five grand or something. Yeah, exactly. But but it would take you that much. If we're looking to optimal three D print stuff, you know, stuff between like a marble and a volleyball kind of stuff, then you know, we're talking like a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars, and you'll have a product plus the marketing photos and plus all the other stuff, and the website. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no simple like simple whatever a Squarespace site and a simple little uh, uh, explanation of it, and that's it. And then also, you know, you could theoretically like advertise via. LinkedIn or Instagram or something only to that one particular group. So I mean, just, it would lower the barriers to entry to everything. You could just have like a, you know, what do you do on the side? You know, I don't garden. I have a sunglass company, you know, do you think that's going to happen or do you think it's, <laughs> it's not that it's not that low? It's not, it's not going to change stuff that much
0: or. I feel like that's how it happens on some level already. Right. Like that, um, some, for some people that they, they do a side business, and then it becomes big enough that they quit their main job and make their side business their full-time job, or just yeah. always remains that kind of, like, small, low-level side business. Um, but I think the difference that we're talking about here is, like, physically making stuff um, on, in, in an easier manner. So I think, yeah, like, I think it changes, but it looks the same on some level, you know what I mean? hmm but um, also
1: the capital thing. I mean, I can imagine the sunglass business could just grow, and if it the unit cost might be really high, but but it just grows. I'm every single pair of glasses could be profitable for me. I don't have to lend money, you know. Right. Whereas at one point, unless I have like a Kickstarter, which kind of decentralizes the, the the funding, of course. But 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 for most businesses, a Kickstarter won't be a successful avenue. Right? It's only like the successful ones, I think. Yeah, um, it's, you can't it's harder to do a think. Kickstarter for like. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's harder, I think. So, you know, it would be nice to, to decentralize the total capital thing as well. But but for most people, I think it's the added value is that you don't have to go into debt or you don't have to risk your house or you don't have to, you know, yeah, stare in the face of, oh, my God, we'll go bankrupt and lose everything kind of stuff. You know, you could just yeah. do this and then whatever. If you lose the business, like, oh, no, I'm out 100 hours
0: or whatever. Right. Your time, maybe a couple hundred or a thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I get to some people, it's a lot of money, but it's, it's certainly less than what it would have taken to start a company and go the VC route, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I, I, think you should start a company and make it profitable as quickly as you can. Um, yeah. so yeah, but I think, yeah, taking, taking your side thing and then turning it into something that you can manage and get to work and then growing it, uh, with time is, is partially of what this is about. Um As well as meeting immediate needs quickly, so I think the other thing mm-hmm. of of decentralized manufacturing is the ability to to meet needs faster than through centralized mm-hmm. manufacturing.
1: I like this idea. like it's like it's raining and everybody wants smaller umbrellas. all of a sudden smaller umbrellas become hip, you know in a weekend, and then boom, you have the product. yeah, you know, on that Tuesday or whatever. Or all of a sudden, everybody needs a certain thing, and you're faster to meet the market. You're faster to, 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 to come up with that demand or come up with that product. I really enjoy that. That. I did, that, to me, is what Inditex does, right? The company buying Zara, they go from idea to having a product in the store in eight days. And everyone else is trying to do it in 14 months. Right. You know, And, that, and so Zara outcompetes. Also, they have more SKU. So it's actually like there's less products or less, there's more different products, but less of each product in the store. So you kind of are tempted to kind of like take it now because the hat won't be there tomorrow, you know. And at the same time, they have lots more granular, they have more granular product offering. They could find a lot more trends and they have actually less fashion risk because, you know, if the hats go unsold, they only have like 10,000 of them instead of like a, you know, a million and if the hats are really like some purple hat becomes the fashion trend, they'll find out about it quickly and then they'll execute quickly on, on making more of them. So I think to me, the, the Inditex model for clothing really revolutionized that space. Mm-hmm. Still, there's tons of companies that are taking 14 months to, to predict how many sweaters are going to be green sweaters are going to be sold in Denmark, uh, you know, next year and a half, you know? And I think the, the model of responding to the market is much quicker. So I like that idea of just being faster to meet demand. Yeah. Which
0: I think there's definitely uh, that model has positive effects for business growth and and the ability to react quickly is part of what the market wants. So it can be a much better way to go to market.
1: I've also thought about like making, doing like a brute force way of doing this, like literally by coming up with like maybe a thousand brands for sunglasses. Right. And each of them having like 20 different models and just like, you know just changing them all the time, advertising for different models all the time to brute force, if you will, find out what people want. Yeah, it's and all then, ideas it's the exactly. Of desire, you know? just, make 20, and just make 20,000 glasses and then just make 20,000 renderings and then see what happens,
0: right? <laughs> see who buys what, and go yeah,
1: with it. Yeah, and yeah, then go with that. Then make more of those, right? Then right. An algorithm, and then make more of that type and then keep doing it until you, you know, at one point you'll have to. And you meet a certain threshold, right? And then you'll actually take, you know, print one out and take a picture of it, you know? Right. Uh, I think it's, I think it's, to me, it's much more logical than trying to somehow magically predict what people want.
0: Yeah. You know, marketing is a complicated uh, thing, right? Where you're, people are difficult because you, if you ask them what they want, they're going to tell you one thing, but that's not what they buy. And that's a well established kind of problem. And so you, you know, the, the magic of marketing is trying to like, figure out what they want without uh without them knowing that that's what they want you know if i'd ask people do you want a 3d pen um people be like what is it i don't understand it so you have to like define it for them or if i want sunglasses like and you would never seen them before like what are why why do i need sunglasses what do they do for me (laughs) like what's this widget Uh. Uh,
1: my favorite example of this is, is is the baby carriage if you think of a baby carriage, you want something that like you can fold with one hand. It's ultra light, maybe carbon fiber, whatever. It's really super light. Um, these things were already affordable. You maybe want like a sturdier one or more well-made one. It was maybe an idea you could have maybe through research come up with an idea, maybe come up with a premium one or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been a nice idea, maybe. But you would always think of having something that's super light and ultra portable, because and just with one hand, you know, with a button or something, whatever, right? Ease of use, whatever. That would be the solution I think that market research would give you. And then what happened eventually was, like, you got these much heavier, much bigger, much bulkier baby carriages that were five to six times more expensive than the ones they replaced. Right. Right? These Stokka and uh, uh, Bugaboo and all these ones are much more massive, much more bigger, you know, because you look kind of cool wearing them. And you can kind of, like, be jogging with your kid or something, you know, with these, like, ultra expensive baby carriages. And that just, it wasn't rational, you know? Uh, yeah, that's what happened to that market. I, I don't think, you know, you're really going to be able to predict the fundamental shifts in any kind of like market, you know, or mm. very
0: rarely be able to do that. No, much. no, yeah. And now like the new, what is it? The Air France one is the new awesome one of that particular market because it fits in the overhead bin. Um, so, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah just, that, to me, that to me actually would make sense. It's actually logical. And you don't have to check it. So it was made in conjunction with Air France. I can't remember what it's called, but, and it's like super yeah. light and super cool, but it's also like, eight hundred or six hundred dollars, which is just crazy Same. to me uns- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's like do I want an iPhone or a stroller? Which you only yeah. use for a set like a kid years. has to walk, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's <a> good for him. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, but I think I think so so what do we believe? I mean and do we think that like, so we're, we're kind of saying, you know, maybe this will work. Maybe it'll be good for entrepreneurs. I think we both agree on that. Yeah, I think it's good. Don't really us. we don't believe in it for electronics, at least on the near term. And we don't really believe in this for commodity stuff, unless it's like has some kind of local top spin that makes it more responsive right. to the market, or more responsive to you know, Angola or whatever, or uh, students in Hull or whatever. Huh? Yeah. But what are some cases or products that we do think this is really gonna like decentralized manufacturing? Is a is a real option or is a real you know a real possibility? I think for like stuff like like really mega fashionable stuff, like I could imagine like jewelry now.
0: Oh, well, that's fair. Clothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you look at clothing. It's really fast, you know, fast fashion. Like, why yeah. isn't there really, like, a fast jewelry segment that would be as responsive as as, as the fashion segment is, you know?
0: But it's, like, jewelry, I feel like, you know, like, the Etsy type of thing is what's going on with Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but could you make something more responsive to t- trends, you know? And you could do the production. Like, the reason I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it as a manufacturing standpoint, of course. You could conceivably do the, the, the jewelry manufacturing through indirect. You could conceivably... You know, if you took all the environmental stuff, uh, you took a holiday with the environmental stuff then 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 then, then doing jewellery locally could I could see that happening, you know, high value, relatively small, production processes can be done in a semi office or yeah or semi industrial environment, you know. And especially do SLA plus casting and stuff. Um, or visage or something. I don't know. Um or what's it called? But anyway.
0: But that's uh, what we but, were talking about the, like these, high value items are definitely Yeah an easier play there yeah like if you're hand making some stuff it's bespoke it's whatnot um even if you're using yeah, yeah. the printer to, to help get it along um i'm trying to think though of things that are like a bit more where you're making you know like a thousand of something um because that's what i think would be the interesting kind of thing as a as almost a an in-between for an entrepreneur or for a startup to like use a decentralized manufacturing technique to bootstrap themselves up um, but then, is there a way of then maintaining that decentralized manufacturing? So I think it's also a system, a larger system, could theoretically be put in place. You know, like a website type thing where which already exists on some on some levels, but where you're taking advantage of you know, in the United States, like midwestern facilities that are currently low staffed or not doing much that could do components and stuff like that, and then some assembly. It's a whole complex a system. <laughs>
1: Oh exactly, but like a hybrid kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting because just personally for the thing, like the startups totally understand it. You go to prototype to your first thousand or something. Right. Your first revenue, you validate it. Maybe you grow and then you're growing without debt or taking on invest, investors. It's very really tempting. It's really cool. That's what I love about this whole Kickstarter thing. These people, these entrepreneurs now have more control over their own businesses than if they would just have to, you know, even before they even have a product, take out some you really extortionate loan, or take out like a really kind of high risk investor just to get the thing made. You know, you validated it already. You're you're kind of more stronger. You have some revenue. You've got you're able to pay some bills. You know. Yeah. Uh, so I think it makes entrepreneurs stronger. So I understand that. And fashionable things, I really understand because that's like fashion. With regards to fashion, people are really like fickle. And I believe in it as well, like food molds for like cookies and and chocolate and stuff. You know, I believe that you could it'd be really interesting to have like really you know, you could have a chocolate line somewhere. You can make lots of different cookies all the time, right? Lots of different shapes of cookies. And oh, lots right. of cookies. Nobody does it. this, right? Everybody's just making, like, Oreos, right? Right. But imagine you had, like, a cookie in the supermarket, and every time you went in the cookie aisle, it was, like, different. Right? <laughs> it, was, like, it was, like, shaped like a triangle. There's mango bits in it. You know, it's twice as thick or something. You know? Well, then you'd
0: be, uh, then so, you'd be upset over not being able to get the cookie that you wanted.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe that would be horrible, right? Or maybe you would be really <laughs> excited every single time. Or maybe it wouldn't work, and then all of a sudden, the 100th time, you know, the mango, chunky, whatever cookies are going to be like the you know mango chili and chocolate is going to be the thing, you know?
0: Yeah. Because you can take on more risk as well. Right. I think that's the interesting part of it, is you can definitely take on more risk. But I think, you know, this is a, a discussion that we'll, we will have to wait and see on some level as to where this goes. Uh, in the future. But I think it's interesting that it's. Increased so much. With this current environment. With the COVID uh, happening.
1: I think, I think it's interesting that it took this. To make this a realistic thing.
0: Yeah, I think it makes sense for like the strategic stockpile
1: stuff. That people are going to have to look at the strategic stockpile stuff. I think also a lot of people. Who thought they had some kind of supply chain. Resilience. Some kind of supply chain. two suppliers and things. Are really going to have to rethink that as well. Whereas they thought, oh, okay, we have two suppliers, one's in Poland and the other one's in uh, whatever, uh, China, so it's okay. <laughs> and now all of a sudden they're finding out that a lot of the components these guys make, you know, are coming from uh, the same factory, right? Or, uh, you know, a lot of the certain things or certain wiring is only made in like whatever, like some some area of China. And then all of a sudden we're super dependent on, 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 on these, these, these clusterized kind of manufacturing fields.
0: And it's like Do you some... think it makes sense? I'm sorry. As you say, if some natural disaster or something happens uh, beyond, yeah. uh, like I know that um, simpler uh, chips and transistors and stuff are currently being done in the Philippines, for example. And if, if something happens yeah. that you know you sharp production of IR uh, systems, that's where they're doing them yeah. right now.
1: I think I think we're more vulnerable. I think I don't know if we're going to have this again. Something like this. I don't. I hope not. But, um, uh, but but I think I think definitely I think you got a good point. I mean I think I think some kind of tropical storm in the Philippines or something could also expose us to this kind of stuff as well. Um, also, the thing I always worry about is like this Taiwan tropical storm where all the fabs are, not all of them, but right. the majority of the fabs are all in the Formosa area. Um, so that could be, you know, any kind of like really bad political thing there with China is also now. You know, there's a lot of political risk in this area where most of the fabs in the world are made. It's there, Israel, and where else? I don't know, the rest of them are kind of like spread out. Yeah. So that, that to me is like there's political risk there, where you know some kind of escalation of tension thing could also all of a sudden end up costing us like our, our entire supply chain.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's something that we don't think about because we built this world where we're like everything was happy, and now that we're in this yeah super long kind of disaster so to speak where we're now being forced to think on it it's not like a a natural disaster where you you know the next day or a week later you pick up the pieces the storms moved on um Mm -hmm. because this is taking months and months and months and it might even take a year Mm -hmm. before it's completed um it really puts different stresses on and it reveals things Mm -hmm. that i don't think were necessarily as apparent in the past um because it's a global effect and it's like this stuff can happen how do, how do you prep for not suffering on the same levels in the next version of this i guess
1: yeah, yeah. well you, you make a lot of like you make a kind of dual design version you make a mass-produced version of your thing and you make an optimized for am or optimized for 3D print version of your thing uh-huh. that's going to be more expensive but hey it's going to be entirely made in switzerland right or 90 percent of it instead of 10 i mean to me the answer is really clear i mean i think uh, and then you, you would then have also a path to you know, using uh, semi-injection molding kind of processes to maybe scale it up a little bit if you need 10,000 or something. You know? So just have like a, a dual supply chain kind of thing.
0: Mm.
1: Or you can have like 80% of your product is still made in China. It's all wonderful. And then 20% of the product will be made in, in Switzerland, right? Yeah. Then you, put a, a, you have your own production line. You, you do it yourself. And there you do all your premium stuff. You know? So yeah. I'm a shoe producer, yeah. right? I'm a Swiss I'm Bali or whatever Bali. I don't think anybody else makes shoes in Switzerland. No, no, Bali makes shoes in Switzerland anymore. Um, you know, I have like the Bally Swiss line, right? That'll make money for me, right? Yeah. That's like uh is it a Swiss I think it is. Um but anyway, that'll that's like two grand shoes instead of a thousand dollar shoes, you <laughs> know. That'll make money for me. And that's like this this uh kind of like that's just a premium product, you know. And it's, it's more customized there's like so I imagine your ballet you have like a ballet Swiss line and then you have the ballet trend line you know all the latest trends and we do it quicker here in Switzerland because you have a workshop of like the most expensive shoemakers on the planet right <laughs> and so so we have the trendier stuff that we', that we there's advantage of local manufacturing we can do from a marketing perspective uh, this is Jean or Sw- shoemaker fantastic right <laughs> and then we have the Swiss line that's just a premium offering even if we don't sell any of it right? It just makes the other stuff look more reasonable, right? <laughs> oh, it's usually a thousand dollars, honey, <laughs> right? These oh my are God, it's so much cheaper um, than the five grand version. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. <laughs> the Trendline ones are three grand. I mean, that's too much, but <laughs> but I mean, so, so you could totally foresee that this company would, for most of its output, just continue making in Vietnam or maybe in Italy. I don't know what they do now, but um, and then they continue to push those, and then they have this as a fallback option, right? to at least do at least 20% of their production and maybe even like in some way kind of expand that production with three shifts or overtime and all that to at least be a little bit more, you know, and mm-hmm. that, that to me is, uh, that model of, of using like, you know, having the premium product being made at home and also using that as kind of a premium sell or, and also using it to be more responsive to the market. That's a really temp. That's the only way I can come out of like this box. Right. And it works for shoes and it works for jewelry. It works for, um, yeah, you know, a lot of sh- stuff like you know implants or, or even complex medical stuff, but it just doesn't really work with the you throw electronics in the mix. Then it all goes yeah, you know, wrong. It anyway. becomes
0: a much more difficult process. But it's still doable. It's just different. It's doable in a different way. I mean, you just the electronics aspect of it is the part that uh, doesn't doesn't get manufactured by the decentralized system.
1: Correct. Do, you, do you think it's, it's like something wise for governments to sponsor this? Cause on the one hand, this whole globalization system, right? You have to understand all the cards are against it now, right? You know, all the cards are anti-globalization because the jingoistic kind of populist people are against it. People are saying it's like a very fragile system. We're blaming it for a lot of like the you know, CO2. We see the environmental destruction the CO2 thing. So that makes sure, you know, the fact that your laptop traveled like 5,000 kilometers to get to you, you know, makes it worse, you know? Yeah. So I think a lot of people are going to blame this, but do you think, so do you think it's a good idea for like, for example, the United States to stimulate this, this decentralized manufacturing stuff?
0: Any government is wise to encourage manufacturing on some level within the bounds within their country. Uh, I think decentralized would require less resources. So more bang for your buck, so to speak. So yeah, I think it definitely has those kinds of benefits for, for government. Europe used to be a manufacturing hub and now uh, eastern Europe is the manufacturing hub for, uh, yeah, for Europe same yeah. with the US like there's still a lot of manufacturing that's done in the US I just I, I think people often forget it it's just very high value goods it's you know cat, Caterpillar still does a lot of manufacturing and stuff like that but yeah I think it's something on the local level there's still a lot of clothing made for example in LA I think people really? are just unaware yeah yeah you have, have so all of the uh, yeah. I okay. was just, uh, American Apparel used to do most yeah, of their stuff yeah. in L.A. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, that's crazy, dude.
0: Yeah,
1: I <laughs> I expected that actually. I Wouldn't expect that because uh yeah, it's like yeah, it's interesting to see like what would make sense. I I think it is like it would be from a from a kind of political standpoint more jobs local whatever. It, uh, it's really tempting to do it, you know. Yeah. And then you've got the job thing to please, like the union kind of lefty guys. And then on, uh, and then you've got the investment uh, angle. And then also you make it kind of high tech as well. And you give it a new narrative. And I think I think this could really be, yeah, you know, if the right, if we pack we or the politicians package it the right way, you know, to the digital future kind of stuff or fu- digitally future proofing our economy, that kind of stuff. I really think it could be a really uh, interesting package for 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 governments to sell as well. But it did, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting development. All, all in all, I think I still don't don't know how realistic it is. I mean, I think I want this to happen. I mean, for me, it would be really interesting for this to happen for a lot of things. And and I think it would be really interesting to to see this and to to have different cities have their own manufacturing tradition again. And to me, like the the really tempting long term thing is like all the waste is made here. You know. Right, and then it could uh, be dealt with at the source. Exactly. So we could recycle all of my pet into sunglasses and stuff. And it wouldn't have to go all the way around the world again, you know back to recycling. Well the Chinese aren't accepting it now anyway. so um, but um but 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 we could actually recycle it here in Eindhoven uh, and then turn it into new glasses for people, the people of Eindhoven. So I think that's really very, very uh, exciting.
0: We can, we can view, visit this subject in a future episode and see how it's coming along and see how things are going. But hopefully all is well. Totally, man.
1: All right, now, Max. I really enjoyed this. Really, I
0: uh, You did too.
1: Um, and I hope our audience did as well. Uh, that was Maxwell Vogue of 3Doodler. Uh, my name is Joris Peels. I'm chief of 3DPrint.com. And this is the 3D Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.
0: Thanks, everyone, and stay safe. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.